Well, the start of something can be a lot of fun. You know what I mean? Like the start of the new year where you get up the nerve to finally go back to the gym and you're like, yes, I'm going to get jacked. I'm going to get super swole. I'm going to go to the gym every day. It's going to be amazing. Or like picking up a new instrument. Has anyone like tried? And the first time you pick it up, you're like, look how beautiful this instrument is. You don't play it. You just like look at it and you're like, this is amazing. Uh, or like a puzzle when you dump out the pieces and finally get them all flipped over and you're like, yes, this is going to be so, so easy. Or even starting a fire, you get your little like teepee built or your little house and you get your kindling under. The beginning is so, so exciting. And there's a joy. And then for me, there's the next part where, like, I kind of lose the steam or the interest or, like, I go to the gym and then I'm so sore because I haven't been in so long that the next time is, like, three weeks later and then all of a sudden I'm not going anymore. Or the instrument where I'm so sick of playing hot cross buns for, like, the 50,000th time that I'm never picking it up again. Or, you know, you name it, the, the puzzle where you can't find the one piece or any of the pieces that go anywhere and you just want to throw the table across the room. Or, you know, in this conversation, my fire has gone out and I'm starting from scratch. Uh, once again, you know, for some of us, there's that moment after the beginning that you kind of lose steam. And for some people, myself included, Easter can be the same way. That there's this joy and excitement around Easter as a holiday, but it kind of like sneaks up on you. Now, I didn't grow up in a tradition that practiced Lent, and every year I would feel like Easter just came out of nowhere, and I wasn't ready to truly celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus. It was like, oh my goodness, we're here, and it's Good Friday, and it's Easter, and it's gone. i got to wait for next year. Well, when I was first introduced to this practice of Lent, I kind of engaged in it the same way that I would an instrument or a puzzle or fire making. You know, I wanted to have that, oh, it's, the, it's new, I want to engage fully, I want to jump right into this. And for those of you who don't know, if anyone's not aware, Lent is the 40 days leading from Ash Wednesday up toward Easter. It runs until the sundown on Holy Thursday, which is the Thursday before Easter Sunday. It's a period of preparation that the church goes through before we celebrate the Lord's resurrection on Easter. And during Lent, Christians are invited to certain practices. They can seek the Lord in prayer or by reading scripture. They can give money to causes or people in a practice known as almsgiving, or they can practice self-control through fasting from many different things. And many Christians around the world practice the tradition of abstaining from meat on Fridays during Lent, or fasting from food entirely, or even choosing to abstain from other things during the season. One of the early years that I started practicing Lent, I wanted to really engage in this. I wanted to do something meaningful that was like important to me, and I didn't want it to be tied around food. Uh, and so I thought, I'm going to fast from coffee during Lent. I'm going to only taste the forbidden substance on Sundays. as like a look toward Easter Sunday. So that'll be my little break during the week and help me get through. And so I did that one year. And after Lent concluded that year, my lovely wife looked at me and said, please never do that again. Because <laughs> I may not be the best person when I'm tired and cranky and coffeeless. But I wanted to Lent. I wanted to practice. I wanted to engage. I wanted this to be real. I didn't want Easter to show up and for me not to be ready. I wanted to be changed by remembering what Jesus has done. And I thought maybe coffee could do it. Well, this Wednesday, you have an opportunity to choose for yourself. We begin Lent with our Ash Wednesday service coming up. And I do not recommend giving up coffee. That's not what I'm telling you to do. But lucky for you, there's lots of different ways to prepare for Easter this year. There's lots of different ways you can choose to engage in this season beyond caffeine withdrawal. 
And one of those ways actually begins today. Today, we begin a series where we explore the I am statements of Jesus. All throughout Lent, now we're starting a little bit early, but that's great. We get a little little bonus to get you in there. But all throughout Lent, we're going to explore these I am statements, these moments in the book of John where Jesus uses the phrase, ego eimi in Greek, I am. And he attaches it to metaphors or titles or things that are meaningful about who he is. So ego eimi means I am. If you want to write that down, that's your first note. And that's important, not just because it tells us more, it's like Jesus just saying, I am this or I am that, but even the phrase, I am, when written like that, is a direct callback to Exodus chapter 3, where God gives his personal name to Moses. Uh, you can see with me here in Exodus 3, it says, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am sent me to you. And when Jesus says, I am, in the book of John, he is tying his identity back to God. He is echoing those moments. He's intentionally showing people that him and God are one. In fact, it's an I am statement that finally pushes the high priest over the edge when he says, do we need any more evidence? Send him to Pilate. Crucify him. It's in these moments where Jesus is claiming his divinity that we can learn about God We can get a little mirror into ourselves, and we can understand more of how we can prepare for Easter and find the hope of the gospel this season. And so as we welcome Lent, as we begin this series, our hope is that you would find hope in these statements. You would find truth and life in the name of Jesus and who he is, and that you'd see a little bit in the mirror of who you are in the process and realize that who Jesus is totally changes that. So all of these statements are found in the book of John. If you'll turn with me, we're going to be in John throughout this series. And today, we'll be in John chapter 6. If you have your Bible, you can go there. Uh, But while we're turning there, I want to invite you to explore a little bit of what John is all about. You see, John is unique from the other Gospels. And John tells us a little bit of why at the end. The end of the book contains the story of Thomas. And you've probably heard of him, Thomas the Doubter. He's the one who isn't there when Jesus appears to the rest of the disciples, and he has a hard time believing because of that. In fact, he says, unless I see the marks in his hands and feel the wounds for myself, I'll never believe. Look at the verses yourself in chapter 20. It says, now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. And so the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails and my hand into his side, I will never believe. And scripture records when that actually happens. See, what happens next in verse 26, it says, eight days later, his disciples were again inside. And Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and he said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. And see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord, my God. And Jesus said to him, You have believed because you have seen me. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Here in the book of John, the account of Jesus' life ends with the story of a doubter who believes because he saw the power of Jesus firsthand. He saw the resurrection. And before John concludes, just a little bit further in chapter 20, we find these words. 
Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so John is written so that we might have life in the name of Jesus, that we might believe and have access to what is found in the person of Jesus. That's why we have these I am statements and the miracles and the invitation to the heart of God found in John 3.16. All that we might believe and have life. You know, John brings us there at the end of the book, but he starts the book doing the exact same thing. If you were to look at the very beginning passage here in the book of John, you would see that he does a callback to Genesis 1. He ties Jesus to the creator. He says that Jesus was there at the very beginning, that the I am who spoke the world into existence and the one who says I am in our passage today is one and the same. The simple fact that Jesus, born of Mary from Nazareth, is God Most High, is on display from the very beginning of John all the way through to the end. And yet within those pages, we also find accusations and assumptions and people saying who Jesus is. And today we're going to see all of that. In this series, you're going to see moments where Jesus says who he is, where the crowd says who he is, and where his disciples say who he is. And all of that is important, but what matters is who Jesus says and who you believe he is. It's our hope in this series that you find out the breadth of who Jesus is, that you can anchor yourself more deeply to what he says about himself, and that that might answer some questions about who you are as well. So let's jump in. We're going to be in John chapter 6 and find our first I am statement. And as we're getting there into John 6, it's important not just to know what's happening in all of John, but elsewhere in John chapter 6, because the I am statement isn't right at the beginning, and what John is telling us about really, really impacts it. See, not only has John tied Jesus into creation, but leading up to chapter 6, we found Jesus turn water into wine. We've seen him cross social, ethnic, and religious divides. He has healed the sick and the dying. We don't encounter the words of John chapter 6 in isolation, but in concert with signs and wonders showing Jesus power and authority as the son of the most high God. In fact, even the portion here in John 6 that leads up to Jesus' words has the feeding of the 5,000 with just a small boy's offering. After this incredible miracle where a whole crowd is fed on just one tiny meal, we have the people exclaiming that this Jesus, he's got to be some eschatological, or eschatological figure. He has to be the prophet mentioned in Deuteronomy 18, a prophet like Moses. That's how in awe of the miracle they were. Scripture explains it like this. This is John chapter 6, verse 15. It says, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew to a mountain by himself. Having just fed so many, they were in awe of his ability to do something like Moses, something like the prophet, that they're like, oh man, we got to do this. We got to make him king. Now is our moment. And Jesus withdraws. See, the crowd knew that Jesus was something special, that he was someone special. They understood the power of God was on display, and yet they didn't see the true invitation. They wanted to make him king by force. There's like a whole sermon right there, king by force, isn't there? 
we, like the crowd, so often want to make Jesus do the good thing we think he ought to be doing. They understood something about Jesus. They saw the bread, and they ate it, and yet they only knew Jesus by association. They knew the Jesus who fed them with a miracle, the Jesus who could be king of the Jews. They knew if they could just force it, it could happen. They saw a Jesus who could make their lives better and easier and more like the the way they expected life should be. How often is our view of God what we expect him to be like, what we expect him to be doing? What we've heard from churches and from people and from neighbors and from all these other sources, who God should be. And how often is it who God says that he is? Friends, Jesus is not defined by popular opinion. You can write that down. Jesus is not defined by popular opinion. He's not defined by expectation. God doesn't bow to what we think of him. Even when we get the pieces right, even when we get portions of who he is correct, God doesn't fit into the box that we make for him. Jesus is too big for the box. The Jesus that fits in the box, yeah, he might solve the problem you're thinking of. Jesus, king of the Jews, might have led the Israelite nation out of Roman occupation. And yet, the Jesus that came was too big for the box. The box wasn't big enough to fit the real Jesus who was there to fix not just the problems of Israel, but the problems of the whole human race. Jesus is bigger than the box that we want to put him in. In fact, Jesus proves that himself in the next passage here in John chapter 6. He literally walks on water. They wanted a king, and instead Jesus walks across the lake. And what's equally amazing is that in that encounter, as he walks across the lake and his disciples are in the boat, they are terrified. They are like, ah, who is this on the lake? And what does he say to them? Ego, a me. I am he, or it is I. Look in John chapter 6. But he said to them, it is I, ego, a me. Do not be afraid. And then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. The reality of Jesus is that he is so big that it is terrifying and comforting at the same time. The Jesus that we serve embodies the whole thing, and that's how it ought to be. In this moment, the disciples are glad to take Jesus into the boat, even if they don't fully understand. And even in a parallel passage where Jesus calms the similar water and waves, and they are terrified that even the wind and the waves obey him. This is the Jesus who speaks the words that we're going to see here in a few verses. Well, the narrative continues, and we follow Jesus and this crowd. Read with me. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. And so when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, 
which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Jesus encounters the crowd, some of whom who have traveled across the lake looking for the one who gave them bread. And he asks them to look beyond the miracle. He asks them to look beyond their hopes and their expectations, to see and grasp the reality of who he really is. He wants the crowd to sit with him, to be with him, and to believe in him. Instead, the crowd wants to know how they can earn the good things of God. It says, they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And isn't that us? Don't we feel like, you know, yes, God is good. Yes, he wants to give us good things, but we have to earn it. We have to do something to get the gift from him. Well, here's the spoiler. Jesus is going to say, I am the bread of life. And we can't earn the bread of life. We can't earn the bread of life. The gospel is based on the fact that it is unearned grace, freely given, that all we are required to do is believe in the name of Jesus, to confess with our mouth and believe in our heart, and you may be saved. Has anyone here tried to make bread before? Maybe some of you online have. Yeah, we have some amazing sourdough bakers in our company here at Emmanuel. And, you know, I'm even a baby bread maker. I whipped this roll up for dinner today, and as you can see, it did not rise very well. Uh, it's a little bit doughy, but even just this labor of love is an example of the power of bread. Because any true bread maker can tell you that even this is not a slow or an easy process. You can't just whip it out right before mealtime. There is kneading and proving and stretching and folding. Otherwise, you get a doughy lump of salt, and it is not tasty at all. You can come taste this later and tell me if I'm a good baker, if you're, if you dare. But no, there is a hard work that goes into making good bread. And the people that know good bread know that working hard is worth it. And these people, they made their own bread. These are people who worked with it. Even the manna in the wilderness, they ground it down and they made it into bread. And so they're asking Jesus, Jesus, if you can provide like Moses did in the wilderness, what do we have to do to eat this bread? What work do we have to do? And Jesus tells them, guys, I gave you this bread. I handed it to you. There was no work. And he says that to us today. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, okay, what sign will you do that we may see and believe you? What work will you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And just to be clear, this is some of the people that ate the bread on the other side of the lake. And this is some new people as well who have joined the crowd. And so these people have gathered, and some people are saying, hey, we heard about the bread. Show us the bread. We want to experience this sign for ourselves. We want to prove that you're this prophet that Moses promised, like him, was coming. That's what they think this is. They think this is another person to lead them out of captivity, as Moses hinted at. They don't grasp who Jesus is, and they've missed out on both the power of the sign that they part of the crowd has been part of and the thing that it points towards. And don't take it out on the crowd. We're the exact same way. Don't say like, oh, how could they have missed? Like, we are doing the exact same thing 
all the time. How often do I ask, how often do I demand that God meets a need that I have directly in front of me and completely miss what God is doing elsewhere, the bigger thing that he has going on? How often do I ask that God prove himself in a way that he's proved himself countless times before, whether in my life or the life of the people around me? How often do I say, yeah, I know maybe, you know, they've said this, but I want to see it for myself. That's what the crowd's doing, and we do it too. Well, thankfully for the crowd and thankfully for us, Jesus reorients the conversation. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, Lord, give us this bread always. Give us this bread always. How often do we cry out to God to give us our daily bread? How often do we ask him for what we need, but hardly know what we're asking? Here we have a hungry crowd. And some people in that crowd were hungry for bread. They missed out on the first miracle. It was harder to come by food back then. That's just a reality. There were people that were hungry. Jesus recognized that when he did the miracle. He said, these people have traveled a long way. There's nowhere for them to get food. And he provided for their hungry stomachs. Others in this crowd are hungry for Jesus to be the king that they want the king of the Jews. They want freedom from Rome. They want Israel to be back at the top of the food chain. They want to be a part of the thing that God is doing here. And they want Jesus to do that through throwing Rome to the ground. They want to be ushered into prosperity and hope in an occupied city. Others were hungry for justice or for escape or for security. They entered this moment hungry for bread from Jesus saying, Jesus, I need this. Jesus, I want this. And when Jesus promises the true bread from heaven, they realized they were hungry. And so I ask you, what are you hungry for? Is it justice? Is it security? Is it hope? Is it a meal? Is it financial security? Everyone in this room, everyone joining us online, has unmet thoughts and desires and hopes and prayers and dreams. We all have things that we carry into Lent and beyond that we really hope that Jesus answers. And so when he offers true and feeling and real bread, we join the voice of the crowd. Sir, give us this bread always. And to us and to the crowd, this is what Jesus says. I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. We want good things. We pray for good things. We ask God for good things. And Jesus, Jesus says he is the good thing. He says that all good things are found in him. Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the bread of life. That is the statement for today. I am the bread of life. He embodies what we seek. He is the one who purifies our desire and our need and reframes our requests 
requests in light of the eternal kingdom and wisdom of God. But like the crowd, we want our needs met before we want Jesus. We are hungry, and we want a full belly. And Jesus says, you're too small. You want me. And we say, no, I want bread. I know more often than not that's how I feel. I say, Jesus, I love you, but where are you in this moment? Where are you right now while I'm going through this thing? If you're not showing up for this thing, then what does this mean? How am I supposed to do this? And he keeps saying, Dan, I am the bread of life. You need me more than you need what you need in this moment. That's a tough teaching for me to hear. I don't like sitting in hard moments. I don't like having a hungry belly. It's hard for me not to eat this bread right now. And I had dinner. And yet Jesus says to me and to the crowd these words. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but on the last day raise it up. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. As John tells us here, as he tells us again and again in this book, the will of God is that we would look on Jesus and believe and have life. But that's a hard teaching when we have an empty belly now. Not so long ago, we said in a sermon that a hope deferred makes the heart sick. And I think that's what some of this crowd was feeling. I think that's what some of us feel as we go into the Lenten season. It can be hard to trust in Jesus as the bread of life when the hunger pangs of this life are all too real. And the crowd responds the same way to Jesus. They say, uh, it says, the Jews grumbled against him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus? The son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know, how does he now say, I have come down from heaven? We watch here as we read this passage, a crowd that says, we know this Jesus. We've heard about this Jesus. They've seen with their own eyes, or so they think. They've heard who Jesus is, and they miss out on who Jesus truly is and what he offers. The Jesus they think they know is too small And yet Jesus only intensifies his words. They get caught up on who they think Jesus is by appearances or by what they've heard or by knowing his earthly parents. And he redoubles down on his identity as the bread of life. Even as he promises eternal life, he goes a step further and chooses language and an illustration that is going to offend those who are listening. And it's already hard to recognize that Jesus wants to do more than fill an empty belly. And yet what he says really brings it out. He says to the crowd, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. There's a period early in the Christian church where they thought we were cannibals because of this verse, because we would practice communion, because we would remember Christ's body and his blood shed for us. Now, at no point are we actually eating people, but that's what it sounded like. And 
the crowd is feeling the same thing. They're like, what? They literally says in John 6, then the Jews disputed amongst themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They don't understand, but they know it's hard. They know this is a tough teaching. They know they're not getting the bread that they showed up for. The bread they expected. The meal that the other crowd got. And yet it's true bread that requires acceptance and repentance and belief. Scripture continues in verse 60 of chapter 6. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? This is not a fun thing to say on the first sermon of a series leading up to Easter, but Jesus can be offensive. Jesus can be offensive. And if Jesus is never offending your sensibilities, if he's never offending your belief, you got to look in the mirror and see if the Jesus that you follow is too small. Are we offended by Jesus, by his commands, by his gospel, by who he loved? Jesus accepts a doubter. He praises the one at his feet over the one who is working. He eats with a traitor. He welcomes a Samaritan woman. He touches a leper and does so much more. We can love the Jesus in the book of John and believe in him, but we can just as easily be offended by him when he gives us a word like the word here in John chapter 6. When he tells us that we need to fill ourselves in him over our other needs and prayers and desires, I don't know about you, but sometimes that's offensive. I want Jesus to meet my need that I feel not be the thing that I need. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And so Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go his way, go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. In spite of that hard teaching, in spite of the difficulty of the words and the life that he called the twelve into. This response shows us that they had seen enough. They had witnessed enough that they believed and wanted to keep following him. They wanted to see more because they'd seen enough of Jesus to be excited about how big he might be. So the question I give you as we go into this year's Lenten season, as we look forward to Easter, as we explore who Jesus says he is, is this. Have you seen enough? Have you seen enough to be drawn in? To say, this is a hard teaching, but I'm here for it. To say that I may not get the bread that I want, but I want the true bread, the true person of Jesus, whatever that means. Because when you've witnessed what some of us have witnessed, it's too much not to keep pressing in. And so whether it's what you've seen or what you've heard from others or what you're praying that you would witness this Lenten season, don't leave without looking for Jesus. Because he is the bread of life. And he can satisfy what you are hungering for. Sometimes... That's bread that fills an empty belly that comes from him. But it's always the true bread that we long for. And so join us this Lent 
as we celebrate and prepare for Easter Sunday. Trust in the provision of God, that he can provide as you give. Trust in the provision of God as you fast, as you withhold things, that he can provide what you truly need. And trust in the provision of God as you pray that Jesus might use you, that others might see in you something that they say, I've witnessed too much. I have to believe. May we all find the life that Jesus offers, the true bread. And may we all believe and have life in his name. Let's pray. Father, we are all hungry in this room. We all bring different desires and needs, some physical, some emotional, some spiritual. Some we cannot name because they run so deep. Some of us hunger for others to know you. Some of us hunger for a faith that feels real and changes our own lives. Some of us hunger because we don't know how we're going to have enough money for rent. Lord, you know all these things. And you remind us that you are the thing worth hungering for. Lord, teach us how to be satisfied in you, for you are the bread of life. In Christ's name.